Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with concerns that the Attorney General Merrick Garland might not be in sync with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, and that criminal referrals from the committee's investigation that could include Donald Trump might be stalled at the Department of Justice. Joining us is Harry Littman a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, now a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. He is the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, Do Trump's January the 6th Sins of Omission and Commission Make Him Criminally Liable? We will discuss whether Trump is liable for both inciting then failing to stop the insurrection under the take care clause of the Constitution and given that aiding and abetting criminal behavior and obstructing or impeding any official proceedings are federal crimes, shouldn't those who planned the coup attempt be held to account along with those who stormed the Capitol? Then, with a U.S. district judge about to make a ruling on Tuesday to decide whether one of Epstein's victims' claim of damages against Prince Andrew should go to trial, we'll speak with Deborah Turkheimer, a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law and a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. Her latest book is Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers, and we'll discuss her article at the New York Times Ghislaine Maxwell is guilty. What happens next is critical. Then finally, we will speak with Michael Edison Hayden, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Slate, Foreign Policy, ABC News, and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. He joins us to discuss his article at the Southern Poverty Law Center, one year after January the 6th, the hard right digs in, and we'll look into the lethal combination of a country with about 400 million guns in the hands of civilians and 22 million Trump supporters who believe violence will be necessary to restore their Fuhrer to his rightful place in the White House. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. 
And joining us now is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, now a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, and the Executive Producer and Host of the Talking Feds podcast and Legal Affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, Do Trump's January the 6th Sins of Omission and Commission Make Him Criminally Liable? Welcome to Background Briefing, Harry Littman. Thanks, Ian. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Well, thank you, and Happy New Year to you, Harry. And we'll see whether in this uh, new year of 2022, it seems as if the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th has a pretty narrow window here if the Republicans are to take back the House in November. They've got to get things done. My understanding is that there's a lot of criminal referrals into the pi- in the pipeline, as potentially as much as... 36, but there's also, and you've mentioned in your article the possibility of Trump being one of those, but there's also a certain frustration with the Attorney General Merrick Garland and perhaps a sense that he's really not prepared to go for the jugular, that somehow he's worried about exacerbating divisions in this country. Do you have any any reading on, on that? It's hard to get a handle on it, but what's your sense of why some of the Democrats on the select committee might have that feeling that Garland's going to let them down or he's not sufficiently aggressive. Yeah, um, I, you know, I certainly don't have a reading in the sense of inside information, but I do have a reading in the sense of having worked pretty closely with uh, Merrick Garland. The first obvious point is they are, as you say, working on different timelines. They've pretty they've set a limit for themselves of an interim report in the summer and a final one in the fall. They're going to you know, they have a huge team with five different topics. They have intransigent defendants and a big litigation, um, a whole, you know, whole practice that will be going on, et cetera. So they are very anxious that there are that somebody go for the jugular and there are hides to show in short order and that's not the natural timeline for the department of justice i will say this he really does operate a good department of justice should and he really does operate according to rules that do not apply to the rest of washington which honestly does leak like a sieve and from the first inkling of possible criminal charges you have uh, people talking to the press and letting it be known not necessarily improperly but talking about trump himself you have liz cheney rattling that big saber uh, a few weeks ago well that would be the equivalent of the very beginning of a criminal investigation when um, there are very strong norms uh, driven by by fairness and efficacy to keeping things under wraps. I will say this, and I've uh, said it um, before, I don't see how you do this investigation, biggest of all time uh, in the department, without working your way up to the potential higher-ups. I don't see how you just stop at the miscreants of the six themselves and not look into it. So I I believe in that sense there will be people, you know, on the ground sifting through what they have. On the other hand, I think you're right and the people's uh, 
anxiety and the committee is accurate that he starts with sort of prudential um, and maybe even political and a sort of a small p um, uh, reasons that he doesn't have, you know, a, a great appetite for uh, jumping into this sort of prosecution, which, among other things, I think the white he knows the White House doesn't want. I'm sure he's not taking in orders in that sense, but you know, he he does serve at the pleasure of the president. So he has a combination of institutional and polit- small p political factors that push in the other direction. But don't push all the way, in my view, to just letting it languish and ignoring it. And that seems to be the sort of grumbling or not not so grumbling, the screaming that you're hearing from some people on the Hill. Right. And again, I'm speaking with Harry Littman, a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, who's now a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, then the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, Do Trump's January the 6th Sins of Omission and Commission Make Him Criminally Liable? Well, clearly, though, this insurgency that took place almost a year ago, we're in about within four days of the first anniversary, and Trump's going to hold a press conference down at Mar-a-Lago, which God knows what's going to happen there. But the fact of the matter is that this wasn't something that was spontaneous and led by these ragtag militias like the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys and and the anti-Semites and the lowlifes and the guy with the horns. There was planning involved, and the more that you hear about what they're learning in the select committee, all fingers that seem to be pointing at, at Steve Bannon, who is a strategist. And there's not just some strategy behind January the 6th, there's been a subsequent strategy to make sure the next coup <laughs> is successful. They've really surgically targeted all of the weak spots in what happened on uh, January the 6th. So the first thing that comes to my mind, Harry, is that... On January the 5th, Bannon on his Breitbart program said all hell is going to break loose tomorrow and strap in. He, throughout that day, he had been in communication with Trump, who was in the White House with uh, Jeffrey Clark, and uh, they tried to, uh, along with John Eastman, uh, tried to uh, offer their plan to Mike Pence. He'd refused it. So the point is, if Bannon... knew that all hell was going to break loose the following day and he'd been in communication with Trump the day before, surely Trump knew that all hell was going to break loose. Let me start at at the point you made in the middle of this. There is no way that it happens as some kind of spontaneous, you know, foot soldiers uh, storming the ramparts. For one, it costs a lot of money. And the more we learn, the more we know that it was financed by known sort of conservative forces. I myself am not ready to credit everything Steve Bannon says about Steve Bannon's role, which, you know, this this week, a book from Peter Navarro came out that had them as the actual masterminds. He both loves that outlaw image and is is self-aggrandizing. But I totally agree with you that it that you know there were people in 
um, Washington who had a strong inkling that it might be coming and others up to Trump who wanted it to come. Now, all of that is very much the business of Congress. We it's it's a scandal that Bannon and others, you know, tout these um, these political slogans uh, and and are provocateurs on TV, but actually won't give their the information. And as a matter of sworn testimony, Congress does have an imperative to find out what happened. It is a separate question whether the different conduct goes, you know, to, speaks to criminal liability. That's when my article was about this week. A lot of people had been writing, well, he's just standing around for three hours. And in criminal law, you need a commission, not an omission. That's just a mistake when somebody like Trump puts things into motion or just has a duty uh, under law, you then then doing nothing is doing something as it was here. Right. I mean, what we know that those three hours, the reason everyone is screaming at him to call off the dogs is because he has the power to and and he's exhorting them to go forward. They think they're there for him and they not hearing a, a uh, you know, a whistle there. They they continue to, to go um, out of bounds. So. I just want to just I, I agree 100 percent with what you're saying, except as it doubles back to Garland and the DOJ. I'm not sure if, if you were saying that it's just a different matter building a criminal case. I'll say this thing. This, however, you know, the the first criminal referral, excuse me, that they made uh, with Bannon there, it was meaningful that Congress is was the victim. Uh, and we heard that again and again, the DOJ would cons- would consider it. There would be other referrals they could make that they're just saying, here's some evidence. And DOJ would say, thanks very much. We'll evaluate it as we normally would. Of course, as a practical matter, a criminal referral from Congress puts some pressure on. But if Congress is actually coming out and saying, here are the facts we found out about Donald Trump and he victimized us and caused one and a half million dollars of damage to the Capitol and made us all cower under our seats. They've got a stronger responsibility to really take a hard look. And one final thing is everything I've felt to date about his native reticence was most clear with respect. This was coming up even before January um, with the Mueller report, uh, and, you know, a whole list of arguable crimes from Trump himself and the administration that I think someone could have taken as a closed book taking office. This, this fresh and huge and still gaping, bleeding assault of January 6th, you, you can't say that about. That remains. The system as a whole, the country has not made its response to that. Um, and, and of course, you're right that in this jujitsu way that he seems to do very well, however feckless he is generally, Trump and and his team are kind of trying to turn this 180 degrees into uh, an actual first article, and there isn't a second article, on their political platform for 2022 and 2024. It's mind-boggling and infuriating, and we're living through it. Right, and there doesn't seem to be any way to stop this juggernaut of voter suppression. That uh, there's a way, ba- but it's but all based on not a on... will. Pardon? There's a way, but not a will. Yeah, right, you know. there's a way, yeah, but not a will, and it's so comprehensive that it could lead to a one-party state. 
a permanent one. So the issue at stake here is the very survival of American democracy itself. But in terms of Bannon, the fact that the select committee held him in criminal contempt, they're not going to get any testimony from him, right? 100%. So that was always the point uh, there that people who were looking closely at the process, I'll uh, I'll scratch my own back on, on this, you know, wanted to make. The one thing about him is he is, as you say, a garrulous guy. And there's a lot of evidence from him that they were going to have anyway. But it was a big cost. They wanted to, I think, lay down a marker for the other people, but they were losing his uh, evidence. And the same is true, by the way, and more serious and more costly to uh, report of Mark Meadows. You know, if you go that other route, maybe at the end of the day they end up in the pokey, maybe not. I I do think this. It's a big, professional, thorough uh, team that is really focused on all it has to do by certainly the midterms when I've, you know, we've just done a, a, a pair of um, end of year episodes, one on the Republicans and one on the Democrats at, at Talking Feds. And, you know, the odds are seem strong among the political brand and punditry that uh, the Republicans will win in 2022. So you certainly can't assume otherwise. So they've got to do it all. Uh, and hope that it uh, has political purchase by, what, September, October. It's a very daunting task. And it looks as if Meadows, I don't know what happened in his change of mind there, where he provided documents and then refused to show up after agreeing to show up. It almost suggests that he thinks that the committee's a kind of paper tiger. Maybe, although it's very interesting. He is sophisticated counsel that he would switch. The big thing for me, and this has come with, you know, there are 10 of these. They got totally afraid once they found out about the third party subpoenas on phone records. Meadows has this phone that he literally dumps from January uh, 6th and I think possibly thinks is safe. And when they subpoenaed the third party is when he came in, stopped cooperating, sued in the district court, said he'd been blindsided. Man, do I hope the committee gets those records. Right. And of course, that's just the metadata, but sure. there, but it'll, it'll be a record of who he talked to and when he talked to them, et cetera. Right, and the pleas from the Fox News hosts to Meadows uh, to get to Trump to stop the rioting when Trump apparently was enjoying it, at least, as you point out in your article, at least he said to yeah. Kevin McCarthy that his people seem to care more about what's happening than, than McCarthy does. What a um, sick man, right? But yeah, yeah, he was jubilant. Yep. Exactly. So, but just in, in the last couple of minutes, let's focus on, on what you're saying here in terms of mm-hmm. your LA Times article that do Trump's uh, January 6th sins of omission and commission make him criminally liable? You make the point that criminal law punishes people for action rather than inaction. But in terms of this action versus inaction distinction, there are examples that you give. Uh, For example, a a lifeguard can't just sit back and watch somebody drown, or a father can't simply refuse to pay child support. So let's talk a little bit about how that applies to Trump. Sure. I mean, there, there are sort of three main ways. If you have a duty, uh, then it, th- this is this is just, you know, law school stuff of omission versus commission. And that general rule that you have to act gives ground if there's a duty 
And, you know, the guy is uniquely in the country, the one who took care of that federal law be enforced. Or if you put into motion some dangerous chain of events, even if you were innocent, if you hit somebody innocently, for example, you can't just um, run away. That Those are two big ways that the omission commission distinction that people keep pointing to uh, really cut the other direction here. The, finally, though, to me, there is if I if I with the limited uh, knowledge we have, we're trying to say what's the best, most fitting uh, charge for Trump's conduct as we know it. It's to have aided and abetted the um, the impeding of the congressional uh, of the official proceeding. That sounds like legal gobbledygook. So just a couple quick points, aiding and abetting, which is what it sounds like is in federal law the exact same thing in culpability as if you pulled the trigger yourself. So it's not like a criminal liability light. So aiding and abetting is to be a full principle. So if he encouraged them, this would be the standard under the law, if he encouraged them to to uh, uh, go riot and wanting it, wanting the proceeding to be impeded, he's, that, that's, he's liable under a statute called 1512. He encouraged with the right mental state. And, you know, so that would be a matter of proving, in fact, he wanted to delay the proceedings. I, you know, I think that's that's a layup. So I, that also would be the aiding and abetting principle is another way that this, you know, standing silent for three hours not only doesn't help him, it hurts him because, in effect, what he was doing for those three hours was encouraging them to go forward you know, declining to, to, to call it off. And they, and they thought they had his and, and did have his sort of imprimatur. Well, that's where I'm a little suspicious. How did the rioters know that Pence had refused to Jeff Clark's and John Eastman's plan that Pence didn't want to go along with it and that the rioters somehow knew about that because they were shouting, hang Mike Pence. They also built a, a gallows uh, in his mm-hmm. honor. And when they were actually in the Senate, rifling through the senators' desks, there's video of some of them talking about, oh, they're looking for, to find out how, they, how the senators were going to vote, get hold of their ballots to certify Biden's victory. They said, oh, no, I think it was them. I think they were actually at Ted Cruz's desk. And they said, oh, no, he's one of us, you know. So, <laughs> well, so. look, one way, this was the only way to, to go. And Trump had said again and again, if Pence has the courage, you know, et cetera. So I, I don't think there had to be a meeting of a thousand co-conspirators for them to be on to that um, idea. That was there. That was the only hope. And it was, you know, even we forget now that, you know, how astonishingly unlawful and anti-constitutional it, it was so that that blunt word had spread, you know, seems to me understandable enough. Right. But just in closing, though, yep. the Constitution does have the take care clause, which instructs the president to take care that the laws be faithfully yep. executed. And I'm not he's got a sure. duty. I don't know how he's going to get around that one. Well, it, you know, it, there's there's again, as always here, there's the verdict of history and then there's the verdict of the Department of Justice, whether to bring a prosecution. And, you know, those two are very different. But I'll close by, I guess, where I started by saying just don't uh, people are too quick to assume that that uh, the DOJ will ignore it. I'm not I, I wouldn't bet that uh, on a prosecution, 
but I'm confident that that they'll give it a harder look than many of the critics seem to um, uh, be anticipating. Well, Harry Lippman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, and again, Happy New Year to you. Same to you, Harry, and again, I've been speaking with Harry Littman, who's a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, who's now a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, and the Executive Producer and Host of the Talking Feds podcast, and a Legal Affairs Columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, Do Trump's January the 6th Sins of Omission and Commission Make Him Criminally Liable? We can take a brief station break and back looking into the guilty verdict against uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and and a ruling expected on Tuesday by a U.S. District Judge to decide whether one of Epstein's victims' claim of damages against Prince Andrew should go to trial. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Deborah Turkheimer, who's a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law and a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. She teaches and writes in the area of criminal law and feminist legal theory and is co-author of the casebook Feminist Jurisprudence, Cases and Materials, and is the author of numerous articles on rape and domestic violence. Her latest book is Credible, why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. And she has an article at the New York Times, Jelaine Maskell is Guilty, What Happens Next is Critical. Welcome to Background Briefing, Deborah Turkheimer. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I think one of Prince Andrew's accusers, Virginia Giffrey, seems to be sort of taunting Prince Andrew, wanting him to prove that he doesn't sweat, for example. British media is all abuzz with this, of course. In fact, the BBC is under a lot of scrutiny because they allowed uh, Maxwell's brother on and gave him free reign, and then they also allowed the friend and uh, somebody that's actually suing Virginia Goofy, Alan Dershowitz, they put him on the BBC and uh, captioned him as a... uh, constitutional lawyer as opposed to somebody involved with Epstein and also suing the accuser, Virginia Giffrey. So on Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan will decide whether Virginia Giffrey's civil claim for unspecified damages against Prince Andrews can proceed to trial. So this story is hardly over. Do you think that given the pressure mounting on the British royal that he might want to cut a deal? and pay her off to silence her? Well, it's really hard to predict how this case is is going to go. I will say that the criminal conviction of Ghislaine Maxwell is a significant milestone. Uh, It may not bear directly on the outcome of, of the civil case, but I think it gives some momentum to the accusers, at least outside of the courtroom. And... Virginia Guthrie's lawyer, David Boyes, said recently in the New York Times interview that Ghislaine Maxwell should have cut a deal. Do you agree with that? 
Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now that uh, she has been convicted, it's very likely that, that she and her lawyers uh, wish that she had been able to cut a deal. But of course, we don't know what kinds of conversations happened between the U.S. Attorney's Office and Maxwell and her lawyers ahead of the trial. We don't know what kind of information she was willing to offer. She certainly has less leverage now than she did before, now that she has been convicted by a jury. She can certainly still offer to talk to prosecutors, and, and they may well be interested in hearing what she has to say, but her information is, is not likely to, to be as important. And, it, and it's coming from a person who has now, again, been convicted of these very serious crimes. But before sentencing, can she name names and get a lighter sentence? Because she's a 60-year-old woman facing 65 years in jail. In theory, yes. I mean, prosecutors can, can, can talk to her now if she wants to talk to them. Um, but, but as a practical matter, I think it's unlikely um, that there's going to be information given now that, that, that wasn't uh, given earlier on in the case. It's It's less probable that this information is going to come to light now that she's been convicted. Although, again, in theory, it could. And in your article at the New York Times, Deborah Turkheimer, Ghislaine Maxwell is guilty. What happens next is critical. We were talking a minute ago about the idea, possibility that Prince Andrew might settle before this case goes to trial on Tuesday. There was, as you point out in the article, a fund created by Epstein's estate to compensate his sexual assault victims, and they, it, this fund has paid some $121 million to more than 135 people, and this was a, a deal that was cut in 2009. So is Virginia Geoffrey, she's already been paid off, I imagine, in this fund? Well, I think the you know the, the civil suit is is seeking uh, damages from a from a different source, um, and you know, and obviously Epstein's abuse would be different from the alleged abuse of anyone else. So she has every right to pursue this civil justice. Well, the point though that you're making here is a much larger one in in your New York Times article, Deborah Tokheim, and that is that there's a kind of cultural complicity involved in these cases like Epstein's and Maxwell's and Bill Cosby's, Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly. I mean, in the case of Harvey Weinstein out here in Hollywood, of course, it was uh, everybody knew what he was up to, but nobody did anything about it. And that seems to be a pattern. It is a pattern. Um, the idea of an open secret, I think, is one that, that uh, we as a society are becoming more familiar with. When you look at high-profile Me Too cases, Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, Jeffrey Epstein, even Larry Nassar, the, the abuse was widely known. And that's part of the reason that uh, I, I want to focus our attention on enablers and cultural complicity in this enabling. The criminal law can go after just the most egregious types of enabling, but that doesn't mean that those who aren't prosecuted are, uh, are really should be off the hook in terms of at least our conversation about this and our, our thinking about how we can all do better. Well, it's extraordinary to think though, that Bill Cosby is out of jail, right? I mean, how did that happen? Well, that involves a somewhat technical ruling by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, having to do with a, a former prosecutor and 
an arrangement that the court uh, decided that he had made not to prosecute Cosby, therefore inducing Cosby to testify in a civil deposition. It was a very complicated, arcane uh, decision. But as you say, it had the, the, the result of overturning this conviction, not allowing for further uh, prosecution. And, and so here we have Bill Cosby, who's you know, one of the more notorious uh, convicted men in the Me Too era who now has had his conviction undone. And I think it, it, it sort of shows the difficulty of, uh, of achieving criminal justice for, for survivors. Well, it was difficult to get justice for the survivors of Epstein. I mean, uh, the deal that was struck by Acosta, who became Trump's Secretary of Labor, was so disgusting. And I've interviewed Julie Brown of the Miami Herald, who broke the story originally a couple of times. And as you point out in your article, it, she was what she was uncovering was not a he said, she said situation, but there was 50-something she's and one he. And they all had the same story. So again, there had to be people in the know about what Epstein was up to, right? Yeah, we look at these, you know, interlocking systems and these relationships of power and privilege, prestige that protect abusers. And we ought to uh, really think hard about all that it takes then for an accuser to be believed and to actually kick into gear any kind of accountability. It's exceedingly difficult. And even today in here we are, 2022. It is still extraordinarily difficult uh, for, for someone who survived abuse to see any kind of justice done in her case or his case. So in the end then, Deborah Turkheimer, what are you hoping will be the outcome? Uh, obviously, Tuesday we'll learn about uh, Prince Andrew's fate and whether or not he will try and make a deal so that more evidence can't come out. But you know, it's an old story, isn't it? The, the prostitutes get, not that these women were necessarily prostitutes, but these young women were victims, but, you know, prostitutes get arrested and Johns go free. That's a pattern, is it not? It's a pattern. Um, in, in, in my book, I sort of talk about these judgments that we make about credibility, what to believe and who to blame and whether to care. These are not idiosyncratic. They're not individualized, they're not random, they're patterned, they're predictable, and they're rooted in power imbalances. And so m accusers, when they come forward, particularly if they're marginalized, are unlikely uh, to, to be believed and to get any kind of uh, accountability. So Ghislaine Maxwell's conviction is, is significant. It is, it is a long overdue measure of justice for these women who were girls at the time, who came to court and testified, and, and for those outside of the courtroom who've described abuse at the hands of, of Jeffrey Epstein uh, with Ghislaine Maxwell's aid. And that's important, and it is, it is a, a milestone. It should also get us thinking and get us talking about these larger systems of, of complicity, of enabling, and, and our responsibility, our collective responsibility to do better uh, by victims of abuse. Well, just in the last minute, do you hope that we learn more about what went on on the Lolita Express, the aircraft, and these various Epstein estates with not just Prince Andrew, but with Donald Trump, Bill Gates, former President Clinton, a whole bunch of big names? Do you think we should learn more? 
Well, I, I think the more that we can unpack about this case and other cases involving misconduct and abuse, particularly by those who are powerful and often immune from any kind of consequences, you know, that's for the good. I think that that's part of what this Me Too era has been about is surfacing these kinds of stories, um, subjecting them to, to the light of day in the hopes that the rest of us um, can respond to the stories appropriately and that our systems that are in place to impose accountability of all sorts um, can actually do what they are designed to do. Well, Deborah Takama, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Deborah Turkheimer, who's a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law and a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. She teaches and writes in the area of criminal law and feminist legal theory and is the co-author of the casebook Feminist Jurisprudence, Cases and Materials, and the author of numerous articles on rape and domestic violence. And her latest book is Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. And she has an article in the New York Times, Ghislaine Maxwell is Guilty, What Happens Next is Critical. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the lethal combination of a country with about 400 million guns in the hands of civilians and 22 million Trump supporters who believe violence will be necessary to restore their Fuhrer to his rightful place in the White House. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Edison Hayden, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center and a three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. And his work has been featured in the New York Times, Slate, Foreign Policy, ABC News, and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. And he has an article at the Southern Poverty Law Center, one year after January the 6th, The Hard Right Digs In. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Edison Hayden. Uh, thanks. Happy to be here again. Well, thanks for joining us. I think it's more than the hard right that's digging in. I mean, former President Trump seems to basically control the, the uh, Republican Party, and his most ardent supporters like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, uh, Paul Gosar and Lauren Bobbitt and others, they're actually conducting a purge of the uh, Republican ranks now, that anybody who's not 100% aboard the Trump train is going to be primaried. So it seems to me that it's not just the foot soldiers that are riled up. They're being directed from, and there seems to be some real strategy behind it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think better to define what I mean by the hard right here, um, because I, I, I would include those those individuals as as part of that tent. A lot of attention uh, was paid to people like the demonstrators in Charlottesville, who in August of 2017 you know, came to that town, attempted to get remove a Confederate statue. Uh, there's a white nationalists, what Southern Poverty Law Center would, would call specifically white nationalists. In some cases, they were neo-Nazis. We make very specific academic distinctions about that. What I mean by the hard right generally are people who ascribe to anti-democratic 
anti-democracy views and, you know, who attach the conservative movement to a kind of authoritarianism that you would see from Polish uh, political parties, from what you see in Hungary, things like that. Um, and, and it's been a transformation over years, uh, you know, by the type of people who fund the Republican Party, I think, to turn them in this direction. Well, there's a very interesting uh, article by the Yale philosopher Jason Stanley at The Guardian, and he's, a, he's written books, uh, How Propaganda Works and How Fascism Works, and the article title is Donald Trump Has Normalized Fascism, and obviously that's a word that's thrown around a lot, but uh, this is a very serious scholar who really knows what he's talking about. And just a quote from the article, the contemporary American fascist movement is led by oligarchical interests for whom the public good is an impediment, such as those of in the hydrocarbon business, as well as a social, political, and religious movement with roots in the Confederacy. As in all fascist movements, these forces have found a popular leader unconstrained by the rules of democracy, this time in the figure of Donald Trump. So if you have a situation here in this country where by various polls, uh, something like 70 or 80 percent of Republicans believe that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president and that Trump really won the election, that's an alarming statistic in itself. And then from the University of Chicago, there's a recent report that said within that group of Republicans who believe that Stop the Steal lie there is about 22 million Americans who believe in violence, that violence will be necessary to restore Donald Trump to his rightful place in the White House. And you've got into that mix then 450 million guns in this country. I see that as a very lethal mixture. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely. Um, you know, I know Jason's work. I, I interviewed him you know, for a Q&A about propaganda coming out of the right-wing machine in, in 2020. And, you know, since that time, not a lot has really changed uh, for the better. What I, would, what I would say is, of course, people, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind are these black and white images that you would see when it comes to fascism. And I think that they tend to recoil when they think that in the you know, context of the United States. And say like, oh no! I mean, you know, come on, here I am. I'm I'm speaking freely on social media. I may even uh, be posting uh, leftist or liberal things or whatever. I'm I'm free to do so many things. You know, one of the reasons I I prefer the term hard right is to understand the basic premise here. You don't have to go into to uh, scholarly de definitions of fascism to fully understand that they want uh, to take power by any means possible. I think that that is, is an important detail. We saw what happened on January 6th. The, the fact that so many people come inured to this. We had, you know, try, try to imagine like 20, 30 years ago in this country, if you tell them, yeah, a whole bunch of supporters of one particular political party would, you know, smash out the windows of the Capitol building. And yet you have so many people trying to downplay that. I mean, it's a very, very scary thing how normalized it's become. They want to take power by any means necessary. They are trying to undo aspects of our democratic process 
slowly at the margins in order to secure those things. It used to be just gerrymandering was one of the loopholes that could be exploited. But now there's so many things they're trying to use to try to limit people from voting and and to, to kind of suppress the vote, particularly of black, brown and indigenous people. And, you know, I think that is a much clearer thing because, you know, when you say fascism, people conjures images of Hitler and things like that. You know, you could say, oh, we're not we're not close to there yet. And we're not. But you can certainly imagine soon also a world in which that the majority of the population does not trust our democracy. Um, and that's very scary. And that, that, that's going to come when, you know, this party does things in order to keep people from voting to such a degree that they can maintain power and keep people like Trump in power. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Edison Hayden, the senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center and a three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting. And his work has also been featured in the New York Times slate Foreign Policy, ABC News, and The Wall Street Journal, among other publications. And he has an article at the Southern Poverty Law Center one year after January the 6th, the hard right digs in. So, obviously, again, as I mentioned, you know, analogies with Hitler, they've been thrown around a lot quite loosely, but nevertheless, there are some fairly real analogies here between what happened in Germany in the 30s and what's happening to this country now, and we'll, we'll call it the hard right, I mean, the mechanism is the same, where you have to demonize an internal enemy. And in Hitler's case, it was the Jews and the, all of the infirm people. And we just had this tattooed white supremacist up in Colorado shoot yeah. five people because he thought they were weak, uh, Untermenschen. So there's a, you know, an example of that kind of mentality. But... You know, Trump came out uh, literally on, when he announced he's pre- running for the president, creating an internal enemy, the Mexicans, along with the Muslims. So there are some fairly similar mechanisms at play here, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you, you, you just missed a big one, uh, which is, you know, that all, all of the classic fascist, uh, you know, moments uh, of the 20th century, I mean, of course, Jewish people are a huge focus, but also leftists uh, are a very big galvanizing force for these people. Sure, um, well, that, they were the first people that that the yeah. Nazis went after. The concentration camps were filled up initially with leftists before they then started to exterminate the Jews. Correct, and 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 you know, often that's a way into um, you know, we we often see with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that it's like, oh well, the you know, this is all coming from degeneracy, that that's coming from Jewish people, et cetera, uh, et cetera. These like you know, really horrific uh, conspiracy theories that help to you know, fascists to form their worldview, understand this kind of friend enemy distinction that their leaders want them to see the world through. Uh, but uh, the, the, the demonization of the opposition, and what you use the left, I mean, how strong is the American left really at, in any case? I think, uh, you know, really useful to understand that, um, or, or to see as, as an example of what is happening, um, the kind of craze around Antifa that happened during the uh, Trump era you may recall, I mean, you probably don't recall this, but, you know, d- during Trump's inauguration, 
in, in 2017, you know, there was obviously Antifa drew a lot of headlines and so forth, uh, protesting Trump's event, Richard Spencer, someone punched Richard Spencer in the face. And what came after that, uh, within a year, there was this really crazy thing where it was like this Antifa civil war. You know, this was a fake news event, basically, where there was just tons and tons of traffic on right wing blogs, hyping up this idea that there would be an Antifa civil war on November 4th, 2017. And, you know, I remember because I was reporting at that time, I think it was for Newsweek, and all the stories I would do about this conspiracy theory were just doing just tremendous traffic, like just tons of traffic. I would see the results. Right. I said, what the hell, who the hell are these people? What are, you know, what, who is clicking on these stories to such a degree? And, uh, you know, and then I realized just that the appetite, this, the, 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 the appetite to see Antifa, to this specter of Antifa as some sort of enemy that these people dressed like ninjas were going to come into people's homes and try to take their guns and uh, try to do all these horrible things to them that justify why people have bought so many guns in this country to begin with. That was a very uh, effective thing for the Trump administration to make people scared. Black Lives Matter became another one where, you know, it was it went from, okay, uh, you know, this is the civil rights message that is very popular, and then they would weaken it over time by saying, this is a communist thing, this communist infiltration, communist infiltration of our country, et cetera, et cetera. Critical race theory is like another one of these things. So they keep coming up with these kind of boogeymen to reinforce this friend-enemy distinction that everybody feels right now. I think the, the white nationalist website, Vidya, refers to it as a cold civil war, which is you know kind of grim that they are so accurately describing it, considering what the role they played in creating it in the first place. But it, it, you know, it's, that part of it is happening, this, this desire to turn people who align with conservative values into people who cannot trust their neighbors, who believe that they were perpetually in a state of war against um, people who live in cities, people who have slightly different values, etc. That is really scary, and that makes us very, very vulnerable to a potential, you know, collapse or or the rise of the hard right, in the, you know, in the future. Well, it seems that you know Trump's always had it covered one way or the other. Had he lost? To Hillary Clinton, he would have been running around the country leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up, and stop the steal. And he said next time around in 2024, he'll do it one way or the other. Either he'll get the presidency back or he'll lead in another insurgency against whoever the incumbent is. And, and that would apply even if it's not Trump himself because his acolytes, like the um, governor of Florida, uh, yeah. will do the same. So what's happened to the Republicans? Why have they abandoned democracy? Is there, a, I mean, obviously they're intimidated. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you've got Bobbitt and Marjorie Taylor Greene and these other Republican radicals, Trumpsters, starting to purge the ranks. So you've got to understand why they're terrified. But on the other hand, you can't accept the fact that, I mean... One of the most telling things to, to me, Michael, is the conversation that took place uh, recently between Vice President Harris and Angela Merkel of Germany stepping down as a long-serving chancellor there. And very plaintively, Merkel asked the Vice President, saying, what's happening to America? The Europeans were liberated by American soldiers in World War II. The West Europeans were. And 
the Americans were the heroes. They got rid of the Nazis. And yeah. now you've got Nazis in the United States government itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at our history, uh, you know, throughout, it's not like, uh, I mean, we, we narrowly escaped um, other potential authoritarian moments throughout our history. That being said, I think that this is a, a, a we are right to isolate and elevate this as a, as, as a very unique danger uh, zone. Uh, so, so what's happening exactly? If you can think back to like 2014, the Republican Party was, was, you know, they were reckoning with Obama's dominance um, as a political figure. And, uh, you, you know, they were putting forward with their, their rebuttals and uh, to speeches and things like that, you know, what really looks like a very diverse collection of Republicans compared to what you can imagine now. Uh, there's like Bobby Jindal. I mean, you, you, regardless of what you believe, uh, you know, what your opinions about about their politics, but Bobby Jindal, Nikki Haley, to a degree, Marco Rubio's, uh, you know, his Cuban roots, and, and I guess Ted Cruz, who is so, so now, now now so aligned with Trumpism. You know, they were really trying to um, figure something like this out, and you know, it, it, you know, an answer to the changing demographics in the country. And, and um, you know, it, ultimately, they really wanted to elevate either Marco Rubio or uh, Jeb Bush. And they had Jeb Bush was speaking in Spanish on the campaign trail, which, of course, Trump supporters later mocked and turned into this uh, really, you know, kind of bullying, you know, fodder for bullying. And then Trump came along and he didn't, you know, he saw, I think, the propaganda on Fox and all that stuff, the potential in it to really awaken, uh, awaken a kind of rage in the population um, that these other politicians were not really doing, these, this, this idea that they would work along with changing demographics to continue to make the, you know, to continue to do things as they had always been done between the two parties. He came along. He was not beholden to the Republican elites uh, at that time. He could do whatever he wanted to some degree. And, uh, you know, only a few people like Ann Coulter, who's, of course, contributed to white nationalist websites, really supported him at the beginning. And um, I think Coulter described it as like, you know, Trump found a thousand dollar bill or something on the ground or whatever, that he just came along and picked it up. And uh, by by sh by shouting uh, build a wall and seeing the results, Trump is a, you know, is a carnival barker and an entertainer. And he was able to understand. You know, just by testing these things out on the campaign trail, see how popular they would be. So the answer is years of propaganda coming from like Fox News and that had really whet the appetite of the Republican Party for this kind of authoritarian, rage-fueled, uh, vengeance-based politics. And then Trump came along and exploited it. Um, and being the grifter that he is, you know, seeing the potential to use that and ride it into power, which he did. He used that. He exploited social media, which profits, which is, again, a profit thing, profits off of people's feelings of anxiety and anger. They fuel mm -hmm. those things. Mm -hmm. And uh, that combination, uh, I think, has kind of, you know, created a perfect storm where now uh, nothing short of hard-right authoritarianism will do 
for this party. I mean, the, the idea that somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene can't become president uh, one day, you need to wake up to that possibility of 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 of, of her becoming so, president. Uh, because, God help us. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean. The, the, you know, but but people said that about Trump, and I think you That's need true. to realize this is not um, we are not dealing. Uh, you know, we are not dealing with people who w- are, want to work uh, with other people. They want dominance. Um, they are ingesting memes that um, glorify violence and, and and so forth. Just just like in Charlottesville. You know, they they were sharing memes about people running people over with a car, and sure enough, a neo-Nazi James Fields goes and does it. You know, I mean, January 6th, uh, you know, talking about storming the Capitol, you know, everybody saw the memes. Nobody really believed it, except for a few people in my field who focus very exclusively on this subject. Um, We need to realize that all this propaganda that they're seeing, people are ingesting on Fox, they are not looking at it with a wink and a nod. Um, they are taking it quite seriously, and um, you know I think that's that's how we how we are the place that we are. I, I, if you're looking for some good news, and not to just focus on on the bad, is that well, what what happens when they get it? What happens when they undo democracy altogether, and they really do install those type of people? I mean, you know, I do think that they are going to this movement will run into a lot of trouble governing, and we saw we we saw a huge preview of that in the summer of 2020, when, of course, the clashes between Trump and protesters became such a such a such a national story, you know, as well as the Black Lives Matter demonstrations following uh, the death of George Floyd. I wonder uh, how how easy would it actually be if they really needed to go all the way with, you know, authoritarian control in a country as diverse as the United States and a country with, you know, so reliant on major cities like, you know, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, will be very difficult to control that sort of thing. Right. Well, just in the last minute here, I'd like to quote from your article, the Filipino journalist Maria Reza, who won the Nobel Prize, a very courageous woman, under constant death threats from the, the thug Duterte, the president of the Philippines, uh, during her acceptance for the Nobel Prize on December the 10th, she said, we are at a sliding door moment where we can continue down the path we're on and descend further into fascism, or we can each choose to fight for a better world. To do that, you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to sacrifice for the truth? So I thank you for joining us here today, Michael edison Hayes. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much, Ian. It's always a pleasure, and uh, thank you for the work you do. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Edison Hayden, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center and a three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, whose work has been featured in the New York Times, Slate, Foreign Policy, ABC News, and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. And he has an article at the Southern Poverty Law Center, one year after January the 6th, The Hard Right Digs In. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here of the free One time, one night One more life.